Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. It's Dr. Janice Fortman with Relationship Matters. I hope everyone is having a beautifully blessed morning, afternoon, evening, wherever you are in the world. Well, I'm still on my soap box. And I know you know, audience, what soapbox I am on. The soapbox is the COVID-19 vaccination soapbox. Have you had your vaccination? Now, as I always say, I know a lot of my audience, a few of them anyway, don't believe in the vaccine, um, whatever. But think about it. Think about it. Even if you don't get it for you, get it for someone that you love. You don't want to get it. And then you give it to your children, your parents, your spouse, and they get really, really ill or pass away from it. Now, I've had both of mine. As a matter of fact, on Monday, I got my booster and um, it didn't give me COVID. I haven't grown any horns and I'm doing just fine. So get your vaccine. Now, a lot of things are happening during COVID. I think they said over 700,000 people have passed, have died from COVID. And think about this. That's a lot of grief, a lot of grief. And today I have as my guest, Emily Thoreau-Three. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Emily before she comes on. Emily is a grief transformation expert and holds a master's degree in English with a concentrating in writing, concentration in writing. She's been teaching writing and composition on the college and university level for over 30 years. I think she's too young. She must have started when she was 10. During that time, she published three writing textbooks with Princess Hall and Pearson Education. She participated with the Bereaved Persons Association in Bakersfield, California, which her husband co-founded. She also assisted her husband, Jacques Thoreau, a bioethicist, with multiple revisions of his popular text, Ethics, Theory, and Practice, published by Prentice Hall and Pearson Education. Now, with the loss of two husbands, her parents, sisters, and many friends, she has in-depth experience in the grief discovery process. And she's going to offer, offer us some real answers on how to transformationally move through grief to a life filled with joy and love. 
So I am going to bring Emily in now. Hi, Emily. Aloha. Nice to see yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, right. Aloha. <laughs> <laughs> and how are you? I'm just great. It's a beautiful day here in Maui. You know, stop bragging. <laughs> <laughs> you are in Maui. I am jealous. <laughs> I know it's beautiful. I know it's beautiful. And we're here in Chicago and um, it's supposed to go down, at least in the outlying suburbs, to maybe 37, 36 degrees, just a little bit above freezing. <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> so I don't want to hear anything else about Maui and Hawaii. Okay. <laughs> and be before we get into the topic, I was really curious about your husband's book because I had never heard of a bioethicist. And so I looked it up. I looked up your husband's book and it said um, examples of bioethicists. <laughs> Ethics, rather, yes, um, is um, organ donation, transplant, transplantation, genetic research, death and dying, and environmental concerns. And so, what from what I'm understanding is that it's the ethics that's involved in all of that. Yes, the ethics that uh, has to do with living. In general, I think it's probably the easiest way to, to say it in anything related to life and death matters. Okay. And okay. All right. Okay. Yeah. Um, I was looking at that and I thought, oh, wow. I'm, you know, uh, that's, that's, that's pretty deep. Um, and, um, and it said uh, that you had helped him to revise his book mm -hmm. uh, quite a few times. I think there are 11 editions. Yes, and now now it's available uh, digitally. It's still used. He wrote it in 1975. Wow. And it's still used around the world. And most of it now is with the online education classes that the universities are doing now so that students have access to it online. But I've got a whole row of the books in my bookcase of all okay. the different editions. Okay. All righty. Well, I, I want to start out um, talking about uh, your journey and how you became. Uh, I, um, well, I know it's not a grief counselor, mm -mm. but but what would you call your title? Well, my publisher says <laughs> grief transformation expert. Okay, and I. It, to me, it's more of a, a facilitator or coach to help people through the process, especially with finding happiness while they're grieving. That's that's a very important part of what I do. Okay, so tell us uh, about your journey to to becoming a grief transformational expert. Well, I became very interested in actually life and death matters when I was pretty young. 
my father uh, got an ambulance company in a small town when I was 13 years old. And my mom and dad and I ran it together. It was a small town, small company. And in back in those days, in the olden days, you only had to have an advanced first aid certificate to be an attendant on ambulance calls. And so, uh, and my dad was the first aid instructor in town. So by my 14th birthday, I was certified and ready to go on ambulance calls. And my first ambulance call was uh, two families and a head-on collision with multiple fatalities. Mm. And it really made me start thinking about uh, the fine line between, you know, now you're here and then you're not and what that meant and, and how to deal with it and how to feel about it. And um, I continued helping mom and dad run the company until I went away to college <laughs> on purpose so I could be away from <laughs> having this 24 hour business uh, that, that we took care of all the time. And then uh, it just seemed like I always was in a position where I was helping people out in one way or another with, um, Friends and in, in throughout my life have invited me to come and sit with people who are dying. And, and so I did a lot of that. And then uh, I was married to Jacques for 22 years. And we had, even though he was a bioethicist, he also was an actor and singer and had a great time in the community with doing that sort of thing. We did a lot of theater together and we had a great, happy life. And when he didn't really realize, I think, that he was dying, he, he had been dealing with congestive heart failure and then renal failure and dialysis and all that sort of thing. And the, the one Friday morning, we had just finished for the first time being able to submit a revision of the textbook online instead of having to mail in big boxes of papers that we printed off. And so we called his editor and we celebrated and it was, it was great. And we had lunch and we we're getting ready to take him to dialysis. And he just said, am I going to get better? And it just hit me at that moment that even though that he taught at the, the college, his main class that he taught was to the nurses on how to deal with living and dying. And here he thought he, all these times in the hospital, all the doctor's visits and everything else were to make him better to get well. And it didn't dawn on me till then. I wish we would have talked about that in particular before, but we didn't. And, and I had to tell him no, because he wasn't, he was getting worse all the time. And uh, he died about an hour later. Oh my goodness. So I, I think he just kind of had to, to know that he didn't have to keep struggling to stay alive. He was thrilled that he got his, his book uh, revision completed. That was kind of what his goal was to get that accomplished. And then he was gone just like that. Oh my goodness. Was, was he at home or in? Yeah, we were, we were in the process of getting him into the car to go to dialysis and he was sitting on the edge of the car and he just looked up at me with this kind of shocked look on his face and, said a not very nice word because he was shocked and that was it he was gone just like oh that. my goodness oh wow i'm sorry to hear that oh my goodness and, and, and how long ago was that that was in uh 2006. okay so now that was your first husband well 
<clears throat> actually, my my second husband and I had a starter husband. But <laughs> and, <laughs> I never heard of him. Yeah, the the father of my children, and you know, we just it was we were young and we weren't quite really right for each other, and it was uh, good for both of us that 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 marriage ended. But then I met Jacques, and he was fabulous, and we were married for twenty two years. It was a oh great, my goodness! Great, uh, relationship. Now, now it said in in your bio that you lost two husbands. That's right. And so, so, so okay, your your starter husband. Mm -hmm. He's okay. still alive. He's still alive. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And Jacques, uh, mm -hmm. okay, he passed. And and so your second husband. I know your third husband. Third, third husband. Yeah. Yeah. I got married again after Jacques. I had no intention of getting married. No intention of dating. I we'd have a great relationship, and I just thought I'm, I can figure out how to do this on my own, and I didn't expect to meet anybody else, but then I did. And he was also quite wonderful, absolute opposite of Jacques. They couldn't have been more different, except for they both were very ethical, uh, honest, uh, very love-based, which was, was perfect. And we had a, a great time together, Good, really good relationship. It took me a while to be able to be willing to fully give into the relationship, though. And he, he kept wanting me to marry him, and I just... I never felt unmarried to Jacques. Mm. It wasn't something I thought about before he died that eventually I wouldn't be married because I, I knew he was on his way out, but it just, I, we didn't get divorced. You know, I know they say from death do you part in traditional vows, but we wrote our own vows and we didn't say that. And it, it just, I just didn't feel unmarried. So it was, it took me a while to get to the point where I felt like I really could get married again because Ron and I became very, very close and it just was the logical thing to do. So there I was married another time and he was, as far as I knew, healthy when I married him, but he ended up having congestive heart failure and renal failure, just like Shaka had. And that's what he died from. So how long were you married to him? We were together uh, 10 years. We, okay. were, we were married uh, almost seven, but we were together for 10 years. So Emily, how did you deal with both deaths? First of all, how did you deal with Jacques' death? Well, I just plain didn't know what to do as much as we'd talked about death and dying i'd even taken the, the class because i was working as a nurse at the time and and it felt like in a, in a past life but um he had a the class that was on living and dying for nurses and i took that class and we talked a lot with that class and talked a lot about living and dying and i i thought i was prepared and one of the really interesting things that happened was we, we were very prominent in the community. We were both involved in theater besides being at the university and the college. And um, we had tons of friends. I had done lots of community service stuff. So, you know, I couldn't go in my grubbies to the grocery store because <laughs> I'd either run into a student or somebody that I was doing something for in the community. So, 
with all that, we had had tons of people that we knew and his celebration of life was absolutely fantastic. And we, at the time we owned a live theater and our, we had actually didn't own it at the time that he died because I had uh, given it to the nonprofit foundation that was kind of went along with the theater so that I could stay home with him for the last, or in the hospital with him for the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. So we had that service at the theater and the theater was full. The lobby was full. There were people out on the street. It was just an amazing number of people. But what was interesting, when he first started getting really sick and he'd be in the hospital, he had all kinds of visitors and people hanging out and calling him and flowers and all that sort of thing. And over the last two years of his life, as he got sicker and sicker and sicker, the people just started staying further and further away. I don't know whether they were having a hard time watching the process he was going through, but they just weren't there. They came out for the celebration. But then when he was gone they didn't really want to be around me. Uh, and that it bothered me because I thought, Hey, you're, you're my friends. You know, we've done all this stuff together for so many years, but they just didn't know how to handle it. You know, and it was most of the people that I knew. So I spent a lot of time alone. I, I had one really good girlfriend that had uh, been staying with me and she was wonderful. I, I don't know what I would have done without her, but she eventually had to, to move back home. And I just, uh, uh, I actually spent a lot of time alone. I would go teach at the university and come home and sit mm-hmm. and didn't watch a lot of TV, didn't read a whole lot, didn't do a whole lot. I was just, it was kind of a time of contemplation with trying to figure out, okay, now, now what do I do? And I didn't really know what to do. And I didn't, at that point, I didn't write a lot, which was unusual for me because I was, I'm a writer, taught writing or teach, still teach writing and love that. But I, I just wasn't doing that. Uh, I just really didn't know what to do. And then New Year's Eve came along and I thought, okay, this is my opportunity. I'm I'm not good with resolutions because I write a bunch of them and <laughs> forget about them like I think most people do. But I thought I'm going to choose one thing that this year I'm going to accomplish one thing. But I didn't know what that was going to be. So I, I did start meditating and did start writing and trying to figure out what that one thing was supposed to be. And what came to me was to accept invitations. And I thought that's strange because I wasn't getting any invitations, (laughs) but I thought it, it came to me for a reason. So when I started getting invitations, I accepted them and it opened the doors for me. Like I never could have imagined would happen. And I had so many opportunities that were just amazing. And it wasn't like people asking me over to dinner. It was things like the uh, newspaper for the county calling me and asking me to be on the editorial board for a year. Um, it was the film commission in the county contacting me and asking them to cre- asking me to create a film festival for them. It was my friend going to South Africa, and she said, "Why don't you come with us?" And I did, and I hadn't thought before that of going to South Africa, and it was an amazing trip. And 
my daughter had convinced me to start going to a trainer who was a, a friend of hers and we got to be kind of chummy and he was a ultra marathon bicycle racer and he asked me to help him on the races and so I actually was the, his like caretaker on the race uh, across America on a bicycle yeah and he he holds many world records in that and that was quite an amazing situation so all these things and there was more than that there were a whole bunch of other things like the the county regional center asked me to be on their bioethics committee as a, a layperson uh, Jacques had been on there as an ethicist, but they asked me to be a community representative as a layperson. So it, it, and it, it went on and on and on. Just all these things started happening. And I was so glad that I had committed to saying yes to invitations because it really changed my life. And wow. it's ultimately kind of how Ron and I got together because a, a, a friend of mine uh, saw me and she said, you know, are you dating? I said, no. <laughs> said, Do you want to? I said, no. <laughs> and she said, well, you need to go on match.com. And I said, no. <laughs> and then uh, she said it to me so many times. I thought, you know what? I made this commitment to say yes when people invited me to do something. And she said it to me so many times. I thought, I, I'm supposed to do this. But I decided to set myself up by writing this list of everything that I had to have in somebody that I would even consider going out to meet for coffee, you know, okay. let alone a long-term relationship. And it was a really detailed list with a bunch of things. And, and then I, I wrote my bio of what I was and, and I went on, um, on a Thursday night and the, the guys, I started looking at guys and said, this is not the place for me. I'm not going to find anybody here. They're just totally different kind of uh, people that I had no interest in, in even having a conversation with. And then I saw Ron's picture and I thought, hmm. So I looked at his bio and I started checking off things on my list and he was every single thing that I had really? written and more. Wow. And so I contacted him the way you do through that. And we started emailing each other back and forth. That was on Thursday. And um, on Sunday, we had decided we'd go out in the afternoon for coffee. But I was still working on that film festival and, and had people at my house screening and stuff. And they, they just they kept going on and on and on. And it was finally like 7 o'clock in the evening <clears throat> when they left. And I emailed him. I said, I'm so sorry. And he said, well, I haven't eaten yet. Have you? And I said, no. And he says, well, meet me for dinner. And I thought you know, I didn't have really experience with online dating, but everything that I read said, go out for coffee the first time. You know? Okay. <laughs> um, but uh, we went out to dinner and uh, never looked back. We were together from then on. Wow. Isn't that something? That is a story. So how long did you all date before you got married? I, I was tr trying to, remember what that was because it was about almost four years I think before oh, wow. yeah because of that not feeling unmarried thing that I had so it wasn't that I didn't love Ron it was just right. you know, it was kind of conflicted so Emily so you you did you deal with Ron's death the same way that you dealt with Jacques no, so how was it different it was totally different uh well there, 
two big things kind of had to do with religion. Uh, Jacques had been raised Catholic, all the traditional stuff, but then when he became involved in philosophy and ethics, he became agnostic. And so really? he, he, yeah, it was, he yeah. just, the, the more he saw, the more he just didn't connect with religion anymore. So that was, that was kind of different. And then uh, Ron was a religious science minister. So <laughs> about as opposite as you could get. <laughs> right. And, uh, and Jacques was half French, half Sicilian, and Ron was African-American. So they, they, couldn't, they couldn't have been more opposite and things like okay. that. Yet they had a lot of things in common. Right. Uh, like they're they're both highly educated, um, both brilliant men, and uh, very love centered. So it it worked really well together. But with with Ron's health, um, he started having problems when we were living on the mainland in in California. We discovered it. We went to a New Year's Eve meditation retreat in Joshua Tree, which is high desert and it gets really, really cold. And being at New Year's, it was uh, especially cold and we didn't have heating in these places that they had to stay. So okay. it was it was cold. There was ice on the ground, the fountains froze, you know, it was it was that cold. And in the middle of the night, he said, uh, we have to leave. We were supposed to be there like three days in the middle of the night. He just said, we have to leave. And I said, do you need to go to the hospital? And he goes, no, I need to get out of this altitude because the altitude was really high. And, and he just, he knew he had to get out of the altitude. So we just packed up our stuff and, and left in the middle of the night. And as we got down closer to sea level, he could breathe a lot better, but he was really struggling to breathe. And that was when we started getting him checked out and discovered that he had the congestive heart failure too, like uh, Chuck had had. Right. So we, he had that for about four years, I think, before he died, starting with that. But initially we were able to get medication and have things work and he stayed in good shape and had a trainer and all that sort of thing. So he was, he was really doing pretty well. But then he wasn't. It just kind of, his health started going down. He'd had episodes where we would have to get to the hospital real quick because he, he, his lungs would start filling up with fluid and he had to get the fluid off. And we, we went through that a lot. And we had honeymooned in Maui and, and had been here several times after that because he still had friends here from when he lived in Maui before. And we really enjoyed the, the people that he knew. I, I never came here like a tourist. And it just was so comfortable there. And he got to the point where he said, you know, why do we keep going back to California? <laughs> Can't we just stay here? So... We bought a house, sold our house there, uh, moved everything. And right before we left, uh, I guess it was about three weeks before we left, I had to take him to the hospital. 
uh, we didn't call an ambulance because we lived so close to the hospital. I knew it would be a lot faster, and I knew that he needed help right then. So I was able to get him in the car and get him to the hospital. And uh, they actually, it, it wasn't, he didn't stop breathing and have his heart stop beating, but he was close enough that it was essentially a code that they had. They had 12 people in the emergency room taking care of him. And it took like overnight to get him stable enough that they could transfer him to ICU. And they did. And then they told us that he had to have a pacemaker put in. And he said, well, we're moving to Maui in a couple of weeks. Can I have it done over there? And they said, okay. uh, no, <laughs> you have to have it like put in right away. So uh, here he, he had a pacemaker. And when you have a pacemaker, they put your arm in a sling and you're not supposed to move it for a while to make sure that the wires from the pacemaker get uh, really firmly implanted where they need to be. So I was doing all of the moving and everything for the house because uh, he, he wasn't able to do anything. He could sit and tell people, you know, point to things, but he couldn't really help. And so he was in that kind of shape when we got here. And he felt his attitude was wonderful. We lived very much in the moment all the time. That, that was very important to us to be focusing on what was good. And at, at any one moment you asked us, we were both being able to sit there and talk and smile. And so all was well, even though all this other health things were going on. But by focusing on the moment like that, instead of, with Jacques, we were focusing on the, the health issues and how miserable he was and how oh, hard it was. Okay, so this was different. So it was different. It was totally different with Ron. And Ron had, he, he had significant health challenges. He didn't feel great, but he just, his attitude toward it was totally different. And he knew that he, his transition wasn't that far off and he was okay with that. And I think being okay with it, I think, I think Jock never wanted to die. I don't think he thought he was going to die. And, uh, and I think that was why he had as much of trouble as he did. But uh, Ron looked at it very realistically. And by being able to experience everything together, um, it made it a lot easier for me because I was able to live in the moment with him. And when it got right down to it, the week before he... Um, See, two weeks before he transitioned, he went into the hospital and he kept getting sicker and sicker and sicker. And he, he lost 35 pounds in five days. Ooh. And nobody could tell him why that was happening. And they weren't able to get give him anything that would make it stop. They were He was having massive, massive um, gut problems. And nothing helped. And so after he'd been there for that long, he asked the doctor what they were going to do for him. And the doctor said, well, we can run all these other tests. And he said, I'm not having other tests. He said, we've done all these tests. I don't know what other tests you do. And he had worked in the medical field. He, he had a master's in public health and he did hospital administration and lots of things like that. So he, he knew how, how things uh, operated. And 
he said, is, is there something that you can do for me that's going to make me better or make, make me feel better, make me stop losing weight, make me not be so weak? And the doctor said, well, we'll, we'll keep doing tests. And, and Ron said, you're not answering my question. And the doctor said, well, you know, there's not really anything we can do, but we can try and keep you comfortable. And Ron said, well, then I think I want to go home. And the doctor okay. said, you can't go home. You're, you're way too sick. We have to be here so that we can do all these things for you. And he said, no, I'm, I'm going to go home. And he said, well, if you go home, it's going to be against medical advice and you can't take any of your medications home. We won't prescribe them for you. And he said, I don't care. I'm going home. And so that's when you all uh, uh, went on and moved to Maui. Yeah, well, no, we moved here two years before. Before uh, then. But when you say going home, yeah, home to your yeah, house. We wanted to go home to our house. And we, we had, fortunately, a very good friend who was a hospice nurse. And I called her and told her what was going on. And she arranged for care for him. Um, she arranged for a hospital bed. By the time we got to the house, there's a hospital bed there. And the hospice doctor was there to prescribe the prescriptions for him that the doctors at the hospital wouldn't give him. And I said, I asked him, I said, do you want to go on hospice? And he said, no, I, I don't think I need to be on hospice. I said, okay, that was Friday night. And on Monday morning, he said, now it's time. I need to go on hospice. So we uh, started making phone calls and called everybody he wanted to know what his situation was. So if they wanted to come see us, they could. And a lot of people did. They got on a jet and flew over here and we had people sleeping on air mattresses and couches and in neighbors' houses and everything else. And that last week was so. Was did a party. he pass? Did he pass? Uh, he passed in the hospice. The hospice uh, at our house. They and your house, but hospice okay. here at the house. So and Emily, Emily. So now, you you had both of your husbands, um, to to pass. And I know you said your sisters and your parents. What I want to know is, as far as a year, uh, the year span, how, what, how, how many years was that? Is it like 10 years or? Well, we moved, we, Jacques died in uh, 2006 and Ron died in 2017. Okay. Okay. And, and I know this really led you to your journey mm -hmm. um, to um, where you are today. Yeah. And so what I, I've got to go to a commercial right quick. And when we come back, I want to talk about, you wrote a book mm -hmm. uh, and I know you do workshops and you're mm -hmm. part of a couple of organizations and and uh very interesting in organizations so i really want to get to your your advice and okay. what's in your book because it's all of us <laughs> sooner or later have to yeah. deal with grief absolutely yes and and so let me go uh this commercial right quick mm -hmm. and then when i come back then uh we're gonna go off into that okay, okay? that's great all righty we will be right back with emily zero three 
All righty. happy that your relationship with your daughter has improved. we are back with Emily and so Emily I know you wrote a book and, and so I told you I'm on my husband's computer so we're gonna see if we can do your book trailer and then oops that was wrong and I've got to share and then I got to share my screen and then oh this is different this computer is different okay Oh, uh, I don't know if I know how to do it. Oh, maybe it's here. Yeah, there it is. Okay. Uh, I know I'm sharing the screen. And, oh, you know what? <laughs> I forgot that you're supposed to put on there. Um, well, wait, let's talk about you. <laughs> we can just talk about the book. That's fine. No problem. <laughs> Talk about your book. <laughs> okay, uh, tell us <laughs> the name of your book and tell us all about it and, and how you really got to write this book. 
Okay. Um, I after Jacques died, I started reading whatever I could get my hands on about uh, grieving and what I could do, and and there were so many that were sad memoirs as opposed to being what I was looking for. I wanted something to help me, something to guide me. And so after Ron died, I decided that I would um, write about what was going on and see what I could do to help me to, to get through what was happening. And I found some really cool ways of writing that I thought I can share this with other people. So I formed a meetup group because I didn't know that many people on the island yet. And people came because everybody wanted to have help with grief. And we had really wonderful meetings where we would do writing through grief. And that I, I saw that that really helped. And then uh, about eight months after Ron died, a really good friend of his died suddenly, who was a whole lot younger than he was. And I was so concerned about his wife that I, I wrote her a letter right away that was like a list of these are things you don't need to worry about right now. Because I know she had never thought about her husband dying. He was, he was too young. And these are things that you do need to pay attention to right now. And she had told me how grateful she was for that letter that I gave her. And I thought, I've got to do more than this. So I decided that for the first year after her husband died, every week I would send her a, a card with things in it that would be helpful to her during that time. And so as, as I did that, once I, I wrote out all the 52 different things I was going to send her over the year, I realized I had an outline for a book. And so I got a publisher and or an agent and then a publisher and we, we got the, the book written and published. But what was different about my book is that each chapter is on like a different subject. And at the end of each chapter, there's something active for the person reading it to do to help them deal with their grief. And a lot of them are the writing things, um, but there are other things in there too of different exercises and things that they can do to help them feel better. And that led me to uh, creating a group that is, is just getting started now. They're just, we're in the process of forming a nonprofit to support it. So anybody who wants to can come to it. That's going to be a combination of writing and happiness that we'll do online every week. And the happiness came to me because I read Happy for No Reason by Marcy Shimoff after Jacques died. And it had helped me a lot. And so I was looking through it again after Ron died. And I discovered that Marcy had training to become a Happy for No Reason certified trainer. And I thought this would be perfect with the grief work that I'm doing because I wanted to bring happiness in that to that. So now I'm a certified trainer for that too. So the Grief and Happiness Alliance that we've formed that we'll be meeting every week uh, will both will write, we'll have happiness practices, and we'll have that it'll all be on Zoom, be virtual, so that we can have breakout groups so that people can talk together and get to know each other and support each other personally. And uh, and. So um, I'm going to ask you this, and I know it has to do uh, with finding happiness after grief. Now, do you, what about gratitude? Oh, gratitude. Is, is gratitude a part of it? 
gratitude, I've got a whole chapter on gratitude in the book. And gratitude was one of the things that really helped me turn around after Jacques died. Because I was, I was kind of negative then. And I had, uh, I, people kept suggesting that I write down what I was grateful for. And I was saying, I don't have anything to be grateful. My husband died, you know. And finally, it was one of those things where enough people said it that I thought they must be telling me this for a reason. And it was before I had decided to accept invitations. So I started writing down what I was grateful for. And I was shocked because the, the more I wrote, the better I felt and the more I wrote. And I just kept writing. I got to the point I was I felt like I was addicted to gratitude that if I'd be in the doctor's office waiting for an appointment, I'd, I'd be pulling a receipt out of my purse so that I could write on the back of it because I didn't want to forget what I was grateful for at that moment. And uh, doing that, I finally got a little little book to keep in my purse so that when those moments happened that I'd have some place to write it. But Every day since then, every single day since then, I have written in my journal things that I'm grateful for every single day. Wow. Wow. And uh, you're part of an organization, and I hope I pronounce it right. It's Naikiki O Imalia. Mm -hmm. Did I pronounce it right? It, it, close. Okay. <laughs> Naikiki O Imalia. Okay. And, uh, I'm not really a part of the organization, but I um, donate to them. A, a portion of my book sales goes to them. And I've uh, given them books. A, a friend of mine wrote a beautiful, Kiki stands for children in Hawaiian. And a friend of mine wrote a beautiful children's grief book. And so I, I bought a bunch of copies from her to donate to them so that they'd have them for the kids. Because it's, it's a, an organization here on Maui where uh, this woman's uh, daughter was pregnant and with her first child and she found a lump in her breast and showed it to the doctor and the doctor said, oh, we'll worry about it after the baby's born. And so after the baby was born, it had metastasized and the baby, the baby was fine, but he wasn't very old when she died. And... Uh, her mom was a uh, uh, psychologist and she thought uh, she was very concerned about this child and how he was going to be not ever having the opportunity to know his mom really right. how what was going to happen. So she formed this group called N Nakiki Amalia. Her daughter's name was Amalia. So it's the children of Amalia. Yeah, we never think uh, really about how children handle mm -hmm. grief. Now, is this the same as the uh, the Doorway into Light, or is that a different? That's a different organization. Okay. Do doorway into Light is mostly for grownups. Okay. And they they deal uh, very openly with dying and and grief and. They have uh, a death store, they call it, and they had a death cafe going on here. And that, that's how I got introduced to it when I started going to the death cafe, because traditional grief groups just kind of weren't for me, because I didn't want to go someplace where everybody's sad. I wanted to bring everybody else up around me as well as being able to bring me up. And with the death cafe, we met at a, a Mexican restaurant. 
at, <laughs> at guacamole and chips and uh, talked about our loved ones and the wonderful experiences that we'd had together. And it was so uplifting and, and really nice. And I, I kind of started facilitating that uh, for the organization until the pandemic put a shut down on anything like that. But they they do um, they do things here like burial at sea, uh, green burials. They they do things that are, are really different than the, the traditional way of handling okay. things. So I just I liked their or I like their openness and the the beautiful stuff they do and and how they welcome and support people and and are positive and in their groups and the things that they do so it's kind of both ends of the spectrum they do both happen to be on Maui but that's where I am right now so that's where I've uh, chosen to donate to so I'm, oh, okay. I'm involved with them never heard of that that uh, that's a, a unique concept the death cafe has meetings all over the country really? I think internationally too yeah they, everybody really? kind of does their own thing with them okay. uh, they have a, a thing about uh, the the central one the people that founded it said it was all about eating cake people getting together <laughs> to eat cake <laughs> we didn't eat cake at ours we ate mexican food but uh, okay so it I, depends on, on where you are <laughs> yes and well I'm, you know I'm, emily a question two questions came in i want to get to okay uh it says um can you give us your definition of ethics in your profession in my profession I would say um, integrity. That integrity. Integrity. Every everything that I do, I tell the truth. And it's like when Jacques asked me if he was going to die, I had to tell him the truth. Uh, I think that when when we tell the truth and we base everything I base everything I do on love, then that's that's ethical to me to be truthful and basing everything on love okay and we had another question uh from sarah crawley she says she asked was it the law of attraction that attracted the hmm. same diagnosis for ron because of the strong unending love energy for jacques that's a really interesting question. And I've actually kind of thought about it before. Like, why did I end up with two people with the exact same thing? And in a way, I kind of felt like even those early ambulance days and everything else, all these things I did were in preparation for me being able to help other people, to take care of other people. And there was a lot of caretaking involved with, with both husbands. Yes. And I was, I was, fully ready and uh, capable of doing that and grateful for the opportunity to be able to do them for both. So it, you could say it had something to do with the, the law of attraction. I know the law of attraction had a lot to do with me attracting both those husbands that were so wonderful. Okay. So, but I, I would, I would like to think that the law of attraction didn't attract illnesses. <laughs> right. But, but, but it attracted the love in your mm -hmm. life. Absolutely. And, and it put you on this journey to, to, you know, to help other people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You never know why things happen, you know, and you like, why me or why is this? 
and uh, it all happens for a reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, for uh, actually, so that you can help someone else. Yeah, you know. Now I have uh, uh, one other question: What is something that you should never say to someone who is grieving? I I tried to get past saying this because I know people never say this with malice. They're doing the best they can. But the thing that bothered me more than anything else was I'm sorry for your loss. Really? Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is it's become so commonplace. It's like saying, have a nice day or how are you? You know, people don't want an answer. And they, they feel obligated to say something because they know that you have are dealing with loss. So they, they feel like they have to say that so they can go on to the next question that could be, how about those Dodgers? You know, that, mm-hmm. that they just feel like it's an obligation instead of something that uh, that's truly caring. Okay. Now, one other question, uh, the last question. Uh, I read somewhere where it says that grief is a lifelong journey. Mm-hmm. Is in your opinion, is that true? Absolutely. Grief is not something that you get over. Uh, a lot of people think that you're supposed to get over grief and move on with your life. And I've, I've certainly moved forward in my life, but I will always uh, hold both my husbands in my heart and my mom and dad and my sister and all my other relatives and friends that, that I uh, have gone before me. They're always going to be there in my heart. And that's just part of the love in my life and it's I think when when people want grief to be over it's it's in kind of a negative feeling and if you can look at it positively in dealing with love then that uh, makes it better okay and we had a comment from Sandy Barney in and she said I hate it when someone would say um I know how you feel yeah, that's that's no good. Because <laughs> no, good. you don't know how we feel. <laughs> right, right. And so now, Emily, if people want to get in contact with you and and really um, get your journal, your your book, loving and living your way through grief dot com. Mm-hmm. Is that the way they can get in contact? With that's you? right. They can contact me through there. That's my website. Uh, you can also email me at Emily at loving and living your way through grief dot com. And uh, it's the books available and it's traditionally published. So any place that you buy your books, you can get it. It's it's on Amazon, but it's also on Barnes and Noble and uh, all the other independent booksellers. It's it's out there all over the place. So, okay. And if they want to call you, they can call you. I got your number. (laughs) Yeah, I got it. Put it out here. (laughs) It's 808-446-355. And you can go on Amazon.com and um, get Emily's book. Don't go on there shopping for shoes and clothes. Go on there (laughs) and shop for something that you really, all of us, all of us can benefit from because all of us are going to go there. Loving and living your way through grief.com. Emily, thank you so much for being with us today. And, oh, got another question. 
But Sarah, we only got a minute. So Sarah <laughs> says, um, so what do you say? I guess if you don't say, I know how oh, what you say. Sorry what I, can, I can tell you quick. <laughs> okay. Mention the person's name and say a memory, a positive memory about them. Like okay. people said about my parents, they said, I loved how they were married all those years. And they all still were holding hands all the time. So that sort of thing is going to bring a smile to you instead of tears. So Okay. All righty. Well, we did get that last yeah. question in. Well, thank you so, Emily, so much, Emily, for being with us. You have really given us a, a lot of information that we all are going to need. And I want you, I told her before the show, not to say anything else to me about Maui. <laughs> <laughs> well, when you come, you must visit me. Yes, definitely. Definitely. So aloha. Aloha. All righty. Bye-bye. Bye. Wow. That was very, 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 very interesting. It's, it's something that uh, we are definitely definitely we all need we are we're all going to need uh, at some point uh in our lives we're all going to need that and uh, i really wanted to have her on the show because especially now through covid with covid going on it's so much grief and and so many people can benefit from uh emily's journal so I want everyone uh, to have a um, beautifully blessed morning, afternoon, and e or evening wherever you are in the world. If you'd like to be on Relationship Matters, just submit a headshot and a brief bio and just submit it to RelationshipMattersTV at gmail.com. That's RelationshipMattersTV at gmail.com. Um, this is Dr. Janice Hooker-Fortman coming to you again from Relationship Matters. And I want you to remember there are all kinds of relationship matters and relationships do matter. All righty. Have a beautifully blessed evening. And I'm on this other computer, so I'm... I'm, I'm <laughs> doing this. Ah. Have a beautifully blessed rest of your day. Bye-bye.